We've talked a lot about just how unusual a president Donald Trump has been. His withering attacks on the FBI and his own Justice Department, his tweet storms floating bizarre conspiracy theories with little basis in fact, his rallies where he riles up his followers with angry, hate-filled rhetoric against his political enemies and journalists who he has called enemies of the people. So consider this, 150 years ago, the House of Representatives impeached a president, Andrew Johnson, in part for conduct, and I quote, unmindful of the high duties of his office and the dignity and proprieties thereof. Johnson, of course, had been Abraham Lincoln's vice president and was sworn in after the great emancipator's assassination. There were 11 articles of impeachment against Johnson, most of them revolving around Johnson's attempts to fire Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, a violation the House charged of a law passed by Congress called the Tenure of Office Act. But one of those articles, Article 10 to be exact, laid out a different charge that seems to have an eerie parallel to the Trump presidency. It focused on Johnson's rhetoric traveled around the country denouncing Congress's plans for reconstruction, including laws and amendments that guaranteed rights to the newly emancipated slaves. In those speeches, Article 10 charged, Johnson did, quote, attempt to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt, and reproach the Congress of the United States, and to, quote, excite the odium and resentment of all the good people of the United States against the laws passed by Congress. In one such speech, Johnson was accused of delivering, and again I quote, certain intemperate, inflammatory, and scandalous harangues, and uttering loud threats and bitter menaces against the country's lawmakers amid the cries, jeer, and laughter of the multitudes then assembled. Sounds a lot like a Donald Trump rally. This week, we travel down to Austin, Texas, to talk with a distinguished panel of top historians and a veteran news executive about Trump's loud threats and bitter menaces, and how unprecedented or not they are. That and more coming up on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say is a ruse. I'm Michael Isakov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Uh, you know, Danny, that was a really cool panel we had down in Austin uh, the other day uh, with some uh, uh, fascinating historical perspectives on the Trump presidency and uh, the Trump's White House's relationship with the news media. Uh, but uh, before we get to that, uh, let's uh, talk a little about the subject everybody in Washington is obsessed with at the moment, and that's the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. Yeah, and, and at this moment, as we're recording, it looks like uh, the um, kind of high stakes, high drama 
uh, hearing uh, may be back on um, in which Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Blasey Ford uh, will both be testifying uh, sometime next week um, on uh, on Dr. Blasey Ford's accusations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, we don't. Yeah, and look, the, the stakes on this, you know, needless to say, can't be higher. You know, I thought when uh, it looked like uh, Professor Ford was not going to show up, uh, that was the opening for the Republicans to ram through Kavanaugh's confirmation. Um, but if she does show up and she comes off to the country as credible, uh, I am at a loss uh, to predict how this uh, plays out, but I don't think it's going to be very good for Brett Kavanaugh unless at some smoking gun that could undermine her credibility. And yeah, and at the end of the day, it seems to me that there is a better chance than not that we are not going to know for sure what happened. And, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, people will be uh, analyzing um, e- each one's credibility um, and and how yeah and the optics and the and the and the theater and how it all plays out uh, politically and uh, we're lucky uh, that uh, we've got our uh, national political columnist Matt By who's going to join us today who's got a very interesting take um, on, uh, on on Brett Kavanaugh his character um, uh, regardless of 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 whether or not uh, this sexual assault happened uh, 36 years ago. We are now joined by our colleague, Matt Bai, national political columnist for Yahoo News, um, who's got a uh, provocative piece up, uh, what Kavanaugh deserves and what we deserve from him. Uh, Matt, welcome to Skullduggery. I'm honored to be here, guys. I was wondering when I was going to get my invite to Skullduggery. <laughs> I've just been waiting around like a, you know, pathetically, thinking it was just never going to happen, so... Well, uh, the time has come. The time has come. <laughs> so look, um, you know, really interesting column you wrote here. And, you know, everybody is scratching their head at the moment trying to figure out how the Kavanaugh story is going to play out. Uh, I, I should just ask you right at this moment, uh, what's your guess? Boy, I, I don't know. I mean, that's not something, you know, I, 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 I try to stay away from the crystal ball because I... I'm always wrong about it. You know, I, I still think, you know, he's probably going to be confirmed um, because he has just such a tremendous advantage in the party balance and the political um, landscape. But I, I also could see, you know, a scenario where, you know, it, it's worth remembering that he wasn't the first choice of the president. Um, you know, I, I, I could see a scenario where the administration would at some point cut its losses. I'm sure they've got a list behind him, probably of people who the left will like even less. Um, so, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think he's irreplaceable. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think in a sense, his accuser here, um, uh, Professor Ford did him a, a favor by asking for the FBI investigation before she would testify. I think the specter of a dual hearing uh, back-to-back uh, next Monday might have caused some Republicans to panic. I think the fact that you know, she's at this point saying she won't testify absent that requirement. Well, let's gives, uh, them, uh, gives them a little bit there, of now. So, Matt, uh, just to bring people up to to, to speed here, they the uh, uh, the latest uh, news is that uh, she and her her lawyers are are, are have op- reopened negotiations uh, with the Judiciary Committee uh, about um, testifying next week. So now it's looking a little I mean, more that, likely that, that she that will. To me is the- 
Yeah, I mean that that's interesting. I, I hadn't seen in about an hour, but that that to me is probably um you know, the most danger posed to the Kavanaugh nomination. If she's going to get up and testify in the country, then I think Republicans and the administration have a choice to make about what the optics of that are going to look like and they have to weigh that against, you know, the time the time uh pressure that they're under with the elections coming uh and the possibility of how possible would it be for them to get somebody else confirmed. But I, right. I think um you know, I, I think absent her testimony, uh, he probably gets probably gets confirmed. Well, let, let's get to the, the point of your column, because you don't really, you know, have a, a bottom line on, on who's telling the truth or really opine uh, uh, on that uh, too much. But, but you do say that uh, the way that Kavanaugh has dealt uh, with this uh, uh, with this situation has been revealing uh, about um, about his character um, and uh, and whether he's uh, uh, you know question and you question whether he he's fit to be on the Supreme Court. So why don't you tell us a little bit about about the the point of your column? Yeah, well, I guess you know as you know Dan from editing the column. I mean, I you know I I often find myself conflicted. Uh, unlike a lot of columnists, uh, I don't start from the uh, a, a sort of team interest prop, uh, proposition. I mean, I really try to think about it, and I and I. When I find myself conflicted about something, thinking about it in different directions, it's been my experience that a lot of readers, if not most of them, are also conflicted if they're not part of uh, one team or another. So, you know, I I just thought about, I've I've kind of thought about this issue because it goes to the heart of something. um, The reason I'm conflicted, it goes to the heart of something I think a lot about and have written a lot about, which is about sort of how we define character. And can you define character by one thing a person does sometimes is something so overwhelming that it is disqualifying or, or have we lost our ability to look at sort of the whole arc of a life. So I, I sort of wrestled in this column with three questions that I thought were really important to, to understanding how you should feel about it. One is whether the story is true. And the other is if it's true, should it be disqualifying? And then the last one is, is Kavanaugh lying now? And if he is, what does that tell us? And I think the third one is the most relevant in some way because um, to me, even if you even if you accept the fact that a a person has to be judged over a lifetime and whatever went on uh, when he was 17 years old shouldn't necessarily be dispositive, um, then I, I I think that you have to ask the question of why is he allowing for no uh, possibility that that uh, Professor Ford is telling the truth and why. You know, why does he seem to deny, to me, the context of the allegation? Not just the specific allegation, but we know enough about who he was at 17 years old from the book his friend wrote, from his own comments in public, from, from her uh, recollections and other friends, to know that he was uh, a little reckless, a little hard drinking, you know, kind of a punk. Um, and I think uh, we can forgive him that. But the absolutism of his answer, the fact that he says, that's not who I was, that's not the situation I would be in, I have, I have nothing to do with her, um, I think fits a pattern in his uh, answers on other issues, on, on, on credit card debt that he was asked about, on his relationship to the um, holding of enemy combatants without lawyers in the Bush administration, that instead of saying, you know, I took part in this conversation, but I wasn't central to it, or yes, I ran up some credit card debt, but I needed money, but I paid it off and I'm fine. His answer to everything is very absolute. And I think that pattern to me is really troubling because what you want in a Supreme Court justice and a great judge and a wise judge 
is some ability to reflect and admit fallibility and see the nuance of a situation. And there is no nuance in his answer to these allegations. There is no nuance in any answer he gives. And but it causes Matt, me, in the end, to have some profound doubt Matt, about him. If I could, if I could, um, you know, push back a little on this. Uh, look, you can't. Uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will try. Um, look, you and I have covered um, matters such as this uh, for many, many years, and whether it be Bill Clinton or Clarence Thomas or Gary Hart, uh, the guy you wrote a book about, and now have a movie we're all eagerly waiting to see uh, in the next. Thank few you weeks. for plugging that. Um, Right. Yeah. Didn't they give the same absolutist answers uh, when first confronted with allegations of personal misconduct? Isn't that the default of anybody who is in the public eye and knows the cost of even allowing that uh, they might be at f uh, even a little bit at fault? You know, it is the standard answer. You know, absolutely not. I don't is, think so. Is Kavanaugh like, all that different? It's a really good question, um, and we could, you know, you could set a lot of examples of it different ways. I can tell you the one I know best in your list, which is Hart, definitely did not do that. Uh, he definitely was not absolute about it. In fact, his answer was repeatedly some version of, it's none of your business, and if somebody has something specific they want to bring to me, go ahead. But, you know, I don't really want to discuss rumors. I mean, you look at George W. Bush, for instance. Uh, you know, George W. Bush's famous line, when I was young and reckless, I was young and reckless, right? I'm not going to get into that. I mean, there are enough examples... But I, uh, of, of, of people answering those questions in different ways. But I think the difference here, too, I think, uh, is, is the job that we are talking about. Not running for office, right? Not subjecting yourself to voters and saying, I admit no part of this, you decide, and I'll serve for four years. We're talking about a guy who is supposed to be a jurist, who's, who's, going, to, who's going to have to consider the shaded sides of some very complex issues, whose vote on those issues is likely to determine the way a lot of people in America live their lives. It's going to have wide influence, and he's going to have that job presumably for the rest of his life. And I think the combination of those factors is what I'm thinking about when I talk about nuance, right? That what we desperately need right now in a, in a, in a tip-the-balance lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court in a divided country is somebody who can appreciate different points of view and complexities of issues. And I'm not saying he can't do that. By the way, I'm not an expert in Judge Kavanaugh's record. And I, I, I consider him absent this episode and this allegation, almost an unquestionably qualified nominee. So I, 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 I make no judgments on his ideology or on his legal scholarship, but this pattern and the, particularly the way he's dealt with this issue uh, makes me wonder if he can see other perspectives. You know, Matt, and, you know, you, and, you, and admit complexity. You know what I thought when I was reading your column is that uh, Kavanaugh uh, was acting like the White House political operative that he was for many years. That he, you know, he grew up in a culture of kind of smash mouth, uh, zero sum, um, you know, political. Battling a lot of what he did was dealing with these judicial nominations, um, and uh, less so as uh, the kind of uh, you know careful, wise, uh, nuanced you know sh uh, shades of gray seeing as you put it, a judge that he's uh, kind of held himself out to be that he's kind of reverted back to who he was. Um, when he was in the Bush administration, um, acting as an operative. Now I I don't know that, but it's the right. it's it's, a, it's kind of an instinct. Um, and, and you suggest uh, 
something that he could have said uh, as opposed to the sort of uh, black and white uh, uh, you know, denial, which could possibly uh, back him into a corner. Um, he could have said uh, that that while he has no recollection of this, he doesn't believe it happened. Um, uh, he has respect uh, for uh, for this woman. Um, uh, what 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 happened, though he did not do it, uh, was tragic. I mean, there are lots of things he could have said as opposed to this never happened. I've never heard of this woman. Yeah, I mean, right. He could have said, you know, look, I did a lot of stupid things and drank too much in my youth and went to a lot of parties. I, I, I'm not a, a person who attacks other people, and I don't know specifically if if I know this woman. But you know, I and and so I, I'm not going to admit to that allegation. But you know, I, I, you know, if 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 my friends acted, you know, there was a lot of immaturity and a lot of drinking, and you know, I'm I, I certainly am glad that I outgrew that and learned from it, or whatever the answer is to you know that. He's, he's really denying her the context of her allegation. He's saying, you're making it up. You're delusional. That wasn't me. That wasn't us. Uh, and I think that's, you know, and, and as I say in the column, that almost makes her a victim all over again. Whatever she went through, she went through. And however she interpreted it differently than he does or whatever their, their distinct memories of it, uh, you know, there's something very cold about that, almost in the way that he refused to shake the hand of that parent from Parkland, there's a sort of there's a sort of cold absolutism about him. Now that may, as you say, Dan, um, you know that may reflect his experience, sort of in the political world, right? And he may be making calculations. It's also, I think, may reflect the administration that's put him forward, right? Because they're managing the nomination, and that's the way they play the game. They are absolutists. They bulldoze their way through. Uh, they don't concern themselves with intricacies of fact. And yeah, it's, look, it's very possible look, that he's not in control. Of his, you know, I, I hold out at least the possibility that he's really not in control of how he responds. Um, look, the, the, and, uh, the, you know, the I doubt stakes that, but here. It's possible. Yeah, but look, he's being accused of sexual assault, about as horrific a crime as you know you can get. And if you allow for the possibility that you might have done something like this, um, you know, that's <laughs> that's a pretty uh, a pretty major concession. Now, this leaves aside the question of whether the allegations are true or not. Right. We simply well, don't know. But I'm just saying if your if your response is ambiguous and you even leave a little bit of wiggle room for the possibility that your accuser may be right, you know, not only are, are you, is your chance of being on the Supreme Court sunk, you know, think of what that does to your reputation, to your family, sure. to your standing in your community. Sure, but Mike, there's, there's a difference yeah. between a reason and an excuse. I mean, I get why you would bulldoze, but if it's a lie, right. it's a lie. And what I'm really, right. what I'm really, the question I'm really asking is, does he know for a fact it's a lie? Because he right. can't have perfect memories of that. He clearly was drinking a lot with friends. This, this, this allegation is extremely specific. It deals with an extremely specific event that he claims never happened. I mean, I would think the best he could honestly say is either I have no memory of it or I remember it and I remember it really differently. But unless she has just confused him with another person, which as I say in the column is possible but does not feel likely from everything we know, then, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, saying she's just making it up feels like, um, feels, feels disingenuous and disingenuous should not get you on the Supreme Court in my view. At the end of the day, uh, it seems, uh, I think, more likely than not, 
that we're not going to know the truth. Um, th- there's not enough ev- hard evidence out there one way or the other. Um, don't you think? Um, I mean, uh, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of, uh, you know, debate about, you know, both sides' credibility. Uh, I've you know, heard some interesting commentary uh, about um, her uh, account, um, and uh, some people have been critical of her because it's so vague and she doesn't remember mm-hmm. a lot of specific things. But other people have made the argument, which I think is is more persuasive, uh, that that actually boosts her credibility because this happened so long ago. Right. Uh, most uh, people wouldn't remember, uh, you know, lots and lots of details. Um, and she would have, if she was making it up, um, she would have every incentive. Uh, to make up lurid and dramatic details, which uh, she uh, has not uh, seemed to have done. Well, something happened to that woman. You know, something terrible happened. Something is true and something was traumatic. I can't, you know, I can't sit there and say it was definitely him. You can't sit there and say it was exactly as she remembers it. I mean, there's, there's question marks, right? These things aren't so cut and dry. But she believes her story to be true. She experienced something traumatic, and she's certain he was involved. And by the way, and, by the way, but I think he may also believe uh, that his story is true. Memory is is fallible. Uh, true. Uh, uh, it it may it may not have happened. I mean that, uh, or at right. least in the way that, or it may not have been him. That I agree with you. That maybe that's less likely. But um, uh, and so it, we may have a situation here where. Both of them are uh, sincere um, in their belief that this did happen or it didn't happen. Um, and uh, and then, um, as I was saying before, we end up potentially in a situation where we, if he's confirmed, we have not one but two Supreme Court judge, uh, justices accused uh, of unresolved uh, 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 allegations of, of sexual misconduct, um, which is we, can't we, be can't we, be great for the institution. It's not, although you know there are a lot of facile comparisons, and I'm I'm not really sold on the comparison, the outright comparison between Justice Thomas and Judge Kavanaugh, partially because uh, you know the allegations against uh, Thomas, while arguably less serious, right, not involving violence were about him as a very high-ranking government official and an employer with power over an employee, right, which today would be an even more serious thing. Um, you know, Kavanaugh, what he's accused of doing, he's accused of doing at 17. And so I would have, and I know people get very upset about this, friends of mine get very upset about this, and I am not minimizing that crime. It, it sounds like it would have been a crime if it were true, and and I don't minimize the trauma to the victim. And I, it's why I, I feel like his treatment of her is so unfair in this case. But I would not disqualify anyone or him from a job in public service for saying 36 years ago when I was 17 years old, I acted like an idiot. I don't remember it or I don't remember it the way she remembers it. It sounds like a place I might have been, but I grew a lot, and I uh, I was stupid and immature, and I've had a long career of scholarship and a family and an exemplary life, and I'm sorry if 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 I was even in a place where this woman was hurt, but I don't have the same memory. I would have a lot more respect for that, and I would not disqualify him. In fact, I would think him confirmable. Uh, my issue, and I think uh, a lot of people feel the same way, my issue is in the way he is disregarding her memory 
disregarding her account and and sort of dishonoring what she's been through uh, in the service of trying to get himself confirmed. And you know, again, if it's a case of mistaken identity, I, I I'll, I'll be the first one to apologize and say, man, if I were in his shoes, I'd have done the same thing. It does not feel like a case of mistaken identity, and it does not feel like a conspiracy. Um, I do uh, wonder about uh, the precedent that can be set here um, uh, to have uh, a, uh, a, a, an event from high school uh, come back uh, to haunt you and disqualify you for uh, uh, service many, many years later when you're an adult. And I, I just wonder um, when there's another president who nominates uh, somebody for a high-ranking position uh, and um, if it's... Um, uh, something in their past, and you know, God knows uh, there are a lot of people who uh, have have bad things in their past, bad things in their youth, uh, and um, you know, one can imagine uh, how the a, a Kavanaugh precedent uh, can be used to uh, disqualify a lot of people. We just went through a huge debate in this country and a big shift in the way we looked at uh, at, at people who had been serving time in prison for many. Many years under mandatory minimum sentences for offenses they committed in their youths and you know uh, the need to allow them to move on and um, and and make pro uh, productive serve productive lives and make contributions to society and uh, you know are are we about to set a really bad precedent now Obviously, look, if it's true, uh, you know, nobody's going to make any uh, apologies for it. And uh, but uh, it is something to think about, I think. I, I think that's a great point, because really, I mean, I was making this point to somebody this morning, a friend of mine arguing with me about it. You know, the, the same liberals who say, you know, this kind of thing at 17, where he to admit it, where he to apologize would be disqualifying, um, you know, for public life are, you know, also make the case that. People who've been incarcerated should have the opportunity to get jobs and get their votes back. You know, for violent crimes, should should you know be given a second chance in society. So I think there's a, there's a lot of politics with it. I mean, obviously the Supreme Court's a different thing, but look, I mean, here's an intellectual exercise because the Me Too moment has rightfully created a lot of reflection in the country, and emotions run high over issues like this for all of us. And so I think you know, and, and for Me Too, and so you know, I think um, when you hear about something like this, it, it makes you angry. And it makes me angry as a father and, and as a husband. But, you know, as an intellectual exercise, there are a lot of ways you could go here. Let's suppose he was 17 and he and a gang of his friends uh, bullied and beat up a kid who was uh, who didn't fit in or was disabled in some way. Right. Something really heinous. Right. That would be a horrible thing to do. Or, you know, let's say uh, he stole and lied about it. Let's say he, uh, you know, was involved in some other violent incident. I mean, um, you know, would we be saying, hey, you did that at 17 and, and the context of your life doesn't matter since then. What you've done since then doesn't matter. I don't think we would actually. I think it's something about this moment and how women are feeling and finally there being this sort of national catharsis that, that, creates, that, 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 that creates a complete... Um, you know, sort of uh, a complete lack of latitude and, and forgiveness around something like this. But again, um, that's a debate worth having were he to actually at least admit the context of the crime and say, you know, at least admit some, some gray area. Uh, uh, you know, if, if he's not telling the truth about it now, 
in any way, shape, or form, uh, then you know that's a then there is no there, there's no forgiveness to ask for. There's no context to ask for. You cannot ask for context. You cannot ask for people to consider the moral arc of your lifetime if you don't tell them the truth. And it doesn't feel like he's telling the truth. Well, I'd say. Uh... That's a great place to end uh, the conversation. Um, Very well put, Matt. We will um, no doubt be back on this subject uh, next week, Um, and um, we will see if if we get this moment of high drama um, and and ugliness, uh, I think it's fair to say, um, if uh, uh, Judge Kavanaugh um, and his accuser um, uh, get the chance to testify. But thanks for joining us, Matt. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, Matt. Happy to do it anytime. Thanks, guys. When we come back, we'll be in Austin, Texas, where a skullduggery recently recorded a special edition of the podcast in front of a live audience. The topic, fake news and the fourth estate, how history will rate this media moment. We're recording this special edition of Skullduggery in front of a live audience in Austin, Texas at the 2018 Online News Association Conference. So these have been especially challenging times for our profession, to say the least. We have a president who attacks journalists as the enemy of the people, labels accurate factual reporting as fake news, spreads conspiracy theories on Twitter, talks about opening up the libel laws to go after his enemies, and regularly whips his supporters into anti-media frenzies at political rallies. So this is completely unprecedented behavior from an American president. So how should we journalists deal with this? How do we cover a norms-pulverizing, truth-impaired president while holding to our core journalistic principles? And what lessons can we draw from history to inform our conduct and gain insights into how a free press, with its critical role in our democracy, can withstand these challenges? Here to discuss these critical issues, we have two distinguished historians and a longtime top news executive. Uh, Doug Brinkley is a professor of history at Rice University, a CNN commentator, and the author of multiple books about American presidents, and for the purpose of this discussion, a really awesome biography of Walter Cronkite. Um, Vivian Schiller uh, was the former president and CEO of NPR, a former uh, head of news at Twitter, and a former senior vice president and digital officer for NBC News. She's now the CEO of the Civil Foundation. And finally, Mark Updegrove, president and CEO of the LBJ Foundation, author and presidential historian for ABC News. And a fun fact about Mark early on in his career, he served as publisher of Newsweek, which made him the boss of both Van and. <laughs> um, Don't forget it, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I say that to him all the time. I never have. Um, uh, Doug, I want to start with you. Uh, you've written about presidents from Teddy Roosevelt to Richard Nixon. Place Donald Trump in historical context. Have we ever seen a president traffic so casually in clear falsehoods? Or for that matter, a White House whose relationship is so openly hostile to the news media? Um, Well, no. We've never had a president who has uh, called the press the enemy of the people um, and has publicly gone on to belittle and threaten and almost turn journalists into um, uh, targets 
fact that reporters almost have to have bodyguards to do their work. Um, it, it's despicable behavior by President Trump, the way that he has uh, been spitting in the face of the press. Um, there are presidents that aren't presidents. Um, Yui Long of Louisiana used to do that with the press. I would recommend you all read an article in a, a Louisiana Cultural Vistas that's out right now by Alicia Long about Yui Long and the press, and you will see the behavior of Long and the intimidation of tactics identical to Donald Trump. What does he have in common, Trump, with Long? Demagogic behavior and an inability to have anybody criticize them and a penchant for reading everything or, or at least listening, in Trump's case, listening to cable on all the insults. So both Huey Long and Donald Trump wants to constantly, you criticize me, I'll get you. And it's a non-going and ugly um, um, you know, line of, of being a public servant, I think. Uh, not, not all, most presidents struggle with the press. Certainly Richard Nixon had his enemies list, and you could see him uh, um, you know, banning certain reporter, Daniel Shore and others, you know, and having wars against them. But then he would also try to cotton to serious reporters, Nixon, on his bringing the press along to follow him to China in 1972 on that historic trip. He'd, he'd go back and forth. Nixon, enemies of the people, he didn't have Fox News. He didn't have the alt-right internet. He didn't have the, the national uh, a, a, a movement of, of right-wing media to back his action. So uh, Trump's empowered by that, the fact that there is no Walter Cronkite, there is no common uh, you know, uh, place in the public square now. People are picking their news for where their political persuasion or ideas on American life come from. And Trump's used that to his advantage to the tune of 35% of the American public. But I'll end by saying Reagan did it right. We laughed. I heard a few chuckles when we saw Reagan and Iran Contra but at least he was humble, came back and said, my heart said it, but the facts tell me different. Donald Trump just disregards facts. Look at Puerto Rico while we're watching right now going on North Carolina. How dare he pretend that people didn't die when they died and says, I'll make up my own death tolls. Um, and so more than ever, American history is going to see this as a time when, thank God for the First Amendment, thank God reporters are staying on the job. And young reporters, I think, are working double time. They're saying, if I'm, we're going to, if I, instead of my eight-hour day, I'll do 12 hours because they could tell that we're in the verge of a constitutional crisis uh, with a president that's unfit for office. So sticking with the historians for, for a minute, um, Doug, you, you talked about uh, President Trump's uh, contempt for the truth, for facts, and we're going to get into that a little more um, in this conversation. But I want to talk a little bit about, Mark, about the uh, rhetoric and words uh, versus uh, actual consequences um, in, in a historical context. And, you know, words have consequences. I, I get that. But if you go back to, uh, you know, LBJ, for example, um, you know, people talked uh, during uh, the Vietnam War of the credibility gap. Mm -hmm. Um, and this idea that, uh, uh, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, that uh, that was a, a, you know, a fictitious uh, confrontation um, that uh, was just, used as a justification for getting into the Vietnam War. Same thing with George W. Bush uh, concocting a false narrative about weapons of mass destruction um, to get into the uh, Iraq War. So I guess my question is, um, uh, 
you know, is, are, are the consequences of, of uh, Trump's actions so far uh, greater or more um, uh, uh, dangerous to our democracy than the actual actions of prior presidents? Put that in some historical context. Yeah, look, there's always natural tension between the executive branch of our government and the fourth estate. That's a, that's a, a balance, a check and balance, right? That's how our system is built. Uh, LBJ said during his time in office, if I walked across the Potomac River, the headline in the next day's Washington Post would be President Can't Swim. Uh, you know, th th there's always tension. But if you look at Nixon, uh, in, in our lifetimes, the president who uh, had the worst relationship with the media was Richard Nixon, understandably so. Uh, but what it, the, the worst, in terms of rhetoric, the worst the rhetoric got was when he sent his chief henchman, Spiro Agnew, his vice president, for the bulk of his presidency, out to call the press nattering nabobs of negativism. I don't know what the hell that means, <laughs> but I know it's not enemy of the people. Enemy of the people is an entirely different phrase. Uh, and it speaks... The, Where does it come from? Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's Stalin. And... and, and uh, Doug said that uh, uh, the, the tactics that Huey Long used were similar to those of Donald Trump. But that comes from the demagogue's playbook. Yeah. This is nothing new. This is what every demagogue goes, goes to. It's, it's a go-to position. By the way, I think he's also the first you. American president to attack uh, the American press on foreign soil, which is also a, uh, right. a kind of a breaking a, a norm. Right, so, so this is absolutely... I, when the book... Uh, is written about Donald Trump's presidency, it will be called unprecedented because almost everything he has done is unprecedented for the office of the presidency. And this, this crosses a line. So, Vivian, as the news executive here, how do we deal with this? Uh, I, you know, the Washington Post uh, fact checkers recently came up with uh, more than 5,000 falsehoods or misleading statements that Trump has said um, since he's been in office. Doug mentioned the tweet the other day about uh, the Puerto Rican death toll uh, in which he seemed to, dis which he did dismiss, uh, it, dismiss it. Um, is it appropriate or prudent for journalists to characterize Trump as a liar? We're, we're, in a, we're in a whole new world, and just as you know, much of the uh, American population is trying to get their head around uh, the unprecedented actions of the president, um, the, the news industry is also trying to figure out um, how to deal with this. I mean, there was, and, and I feel like there's a little bit of a change um, happening now. You know, not very long ago, maybe six, eight, ten months ago now, I'm not sure, you know, after one of Tr Trump's usual uh, attacks on the media, he was talking about, uh, you know, the, the Washington Post being at, at war with him and, and the editor-in-chief, Marty Baron, you know, famously said, and it's been quoted everywhere, um, we're not at war, we're at work. Um, and that's, that, that has been, and, and you know, it's, a, it's quite, and, you know, we journalists all felt like, yes, that's who we are. We don't, you know, we don't sink to their level. But I think that there's a sense now that that is not enough. And it's not um, enough simply to just keep doing our jobs as journalists and, you know, call out the falsehoods but nothing else. And there is now sort of a growing movement among sort of, you know, uh, uh, Chuck Todd wrote quite a compelling piece um, recently about how, and, and, and Brian Stelter has been at CNN has been very good about this, how we need to think differently about, um, you know, taking the president on. 
um, and his, yes. So in answer to my question, is it okay to use the word lie in describing Donald Trump's comments? Yes, I, I'm going to give maybe an unsatisfying answer, which is it depends. You know, I mean, there is intentionality matters. Now, many of Donald Trump's lies are intentional lies. But, you know, there are times, I mean, each case needs to look, be looked at separately. And sometimes it's more important to say a falsehood if it's not clear that the intention is to spit wrong information and sow confusion into the world, which is right. most of the case with Trump. But, there, but it really does depend. Well, just staying on this for a second, Vivian, isn't there a danger, though, uh, that uh, this whole issue of whether we call Donald Trump a liar becomes the story itself, and also that we get dragged down um, to his level and become part of his narrative? Well, one of the things, look, I think um, you know, journalists, American journalists, are doing heroic work in, in this era. But if there's one thing that frustrates me is sort of this obsession with a lot of the little things. And this whole debate about calling it a lie, I mean, this isn't that complicated. I don't know why we're obsessing about it so much. It does make us, the media, the story, right. and which is what Trump wants and is not very useful and is distracting from reporting on Trump, Trump's actions. So, um, sorry, were you? Yeah, no, I, I just want to ask, uh, uh, we've talked uh, about the unprecedented nature of this presidency. Um, but I just want to, along that theme, let's take the, uh, uh, the new Bob Woodward book uh, in which um, the current chief of staff to the president is quoted calling him an idiot. Um, the defense secretary is quoted as comparing him to a fifth or sixth grader. Uh, a top economic advisor steals a, uh, a key document off his desk. Have we ever had a White House, Doug, where aides have spoken about the president with this much contempt? No, it's, in, it's Hans Christian Andersen, the emperor has no clothes. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't seem to realize even the people around him think he's not fit for command. They're worried. They're, there are alarm bells going off. The anonymous piece in the in New York Times was highly unusual. I've seen moments where those things, I once wrote a book with Townsend Hoops during the Lyndon Johnson years. Hoops worked as an undersecretary of the Air Force and he started leaking out stuff, uh, and eventually they found out his name. It'd be like Anonymous getting busted, and Johnson would go, who's Hoopsie? I've never heard of a Hoopsie. His name was Hoops, but he said, like, and now why does all the media want me to know about all of this? And Anonymous may not be one of the star players of the, um, uh, of the Trump administration in the end, but Anonymous and the Bob Woodward book and Trump's overreaction to them all. The reason Ronald Reagan was able to be two terms and have a national airport named after him is because he would privately diary reporters that he was angry at, but just floated over, this, over the scene. You can't every day be reading negative stuff about you when you're a narcissistic personality and be getting narcissistic wounds um, to his ego, and then he's playing the Roy Cohen philosophy of retaliation. Each punch, I punch back harder, each punch. That worked for him in New York business circles to a large degree. But now when you're getting that many punches, you start getting dizzy. Tweet here, tweet there, this there, I say this. And it's, he starts spinning like a dervish 
out of control, I would recommend Donald Trump not watch cable television. Um, and, you know, I think it would help him immensely, and I would moderate his tweeting, and everybody said that earlier. I, don't, I think he's a genius media of using tweets in the way for his political gain, but writing false figures and the president of the United States putting misinformation out there all the time. And we are in a serious crisis because we're dealing with a president and a lot of his followers who buy into conspiracy theories. And InfoWars is here in Austin, Texas. People buy into that stuff. They crave John F. Kennedy wasn't really, um, you know, um, you know, was killed by they make people up and uh, Neil Armstrong never went to the moon. It's like conspiracy theories. And Trump peddles in that. Well, so, so last night uh, we were uh, we were at a uh, an East Austin tamale joint, and uh, while we were waiting in line, um, our colleague uh, Lauren uh, Johnston overheard some young men trashing the fake news media, um, and it made me wonder, um, you know, uh, to to what extent um, is is all of this really kind of seeping into the culture, and how lasting do we think um, it'll be? Um, you know, and, and, and how successful ultimately uh, do we think Trump and Trumpism will be in delegitimizing the, you know, the factual uh, media? And I guess another way of asking that question, and uh, actually uh, Barack Obama alluded to this in his speeches, is, is Trump a, uh, a symptom or is he a disease? Is he a reflection of what's going on or is he the cause? And um, I guess through the lens of history, and Vivian, I'd love to hear what you have to think about this as well, um, what do we think about that? Well, uh, clearly Trump um, wouldn't be president today and, and wouldn't um, have even 36% of the polls or whatever the latest number is uh, if there weren't a base of people who uh, believed in him and who supported him. But what is the most frightening thing to me of all here is not Trump. Trump eventually will, will go away one way or the other. Um, but what we're left with, and the, you know, at, beyond the attacks of the media, is... He's not just attacking the media. He is causing people to call into question evidence-based information. And so even while people have always disagreed, we, we as a human race have, have, for the most part, sort of agreed on a basic foundation of facts from which you then, right. you know, fork off into, you know, your, your own particular views. Now, you know, up is down, you know, left is right, and that erosion of facts, you know, is going to be with us long after Trump goes, and this is the most terrifying thing to me of all. Mark, do you have a... I was going to say, uh, this is a guy who has, is a master of throwing everyone off balance. And as he told Leslie Stahl, his attack on the media was preemptive. He wanted you to question their credibility immediately, so that if anything came out that was negative about him, he could go back and say, see, I told you, these guys don't have any credibility. It's right. actually, he, he was honest when he went off camera. Absolutely. Well, yes, <laughs> but, but, but that is what he does, and he does it very, very successfully. And so fake news has become part of the vernacular. And, and by God, any good news organization is bound to make a mistake. And he can point to them at that point and say, see, I told you so. See, folks? I want to I get to the performance of the news media and all this, but I wanna, before, do, before doing that, I want to push back on the idea that this is completely unprecedented. And I want to read uh, to our historians here um, something that's been pointed out to me, which is um, a page from the uh, impeachment of Andrew Johnson. 
the first president to be impeached. And he was actually uh, impeached on 11 articles, and Article 10 talked about his speeches and public rhetoric. Uh, and I want to just read you a little from Article 10. That um, Andrew Johnson, president, unmindful of the high duties of his office and the dignity and proprieties thereof, did attempt to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt, and reproach the Congress of the United States and to excite the odium and resentment of all the good people of the United States against Congress, and to make and deliver with a loud voice certain intemperate, inflammatory, and scandalous harangues, and did therein utter loud threats and bitter menaces uh, amid the cries, jeers, and laughter of the multitudes then assembled and in hearing. Um, sound familiar? Uh, I guess the question is, um, can that form some precedent for um, an article of impeachment against Donald Trump? You know, I, we are using a lot of terms. There's American culture, and people all the time right now are using the word impeachment, um, you know, treason, um, you know, obstruction of justice. Um, basically, they're all terms being levied by that 65% of Americans that aren't hoodwinked by Donald Trump that think he's not a presidential timber. And I think then you'll get the op-ed in the New York Times, Washington Post the next day saying, well, technically, treason is not, the, is not what's happening, or technically, he can't, uh, we can't do the 25th Amendment because of blah, blah, blah. But the point is that the country is saying this is unacceptable behavior. And I think the press focuses on this, this big Trump base of 35 and not just seeing how disgusted um, the um, other 60% of the American people are. There's no mother or father in a sane mind that can go up and say, I, I'd want my son to behave the way Donald Trump is behaving, meaning bullying, belittling people, abusing the airways. One could go on and on and on. Um, so impeachment is a political process, and we may be here, he, heading there. If the Democrats take Congress, if they took Congress and the Senate, um, it, it could very well be the, de uh, the, the, the death of, of the political career of Donald Trump. Um, but my, very well, like Bill Clinton got impeached by Congress, and then as all both of you know so well, I mean, the Senate said no, and Clinton stayed on and left office. You need 67 votes in the Senate. And didn't yeah. have them, and Clinton was, had Congress impeach him, but he stayed on, two-term president, and left with a high public uh, approval rating. So that could happen to Trump. He could be a two-termer, gets impeached by Congress, Senate says no. In Nixon and Watergate, we had a group of seven, you know, or more of a big senators in the Republican Party, Howard Baker of Tennessee, Barry Goldwater of Arizona, who said to Nixon, and they used the lie word, you lied to me, and you're, we're done with you. Where are those Republicans that are willing to say that? Well, Bob Corker is. He's also leaving the Senate. For, um, Jeff Flake does. He's leaving. Governor Kasich does, but he's a governor. So will there be a movement? And I think the anonymous reflected not just the death of John McCain, which is mentioned, but Trump really beat up on a lot of, of um, career um, intelligence officers, the firing of Brennan. And people like Robert Gates, the great, great Republican figure in national security, people like William Webster, the old guy. These are guys aren't left or Clintonians or whatever. They're just American people, many of them Republican conservatives, as is Bob Mueller. 
saying you're not, we're not allowing a, a, somebody with dictatorial ambitions to um, destroy the institution of uh, the executive branch of the United States. And so I'm heartened by a lot of checks kicking in, not heartened the most by the press. This is a golden age of the press. People like all of these reporters are going to become celebrated. I'm teaching at Rice University, and we do Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, and I feel like Maggie Haberman and Michael Isikoff, others, we're going to be, we're talking about them as thank God we've got you. And thank God we have Bob Mueller. Spike Lee's wearing a T-shirt, you know, God pray for, <laughs> for Bob Mueller. That's how they end you know, so it's, uh, I think journalism's in a, in a, having a great moment right now because they're not bending. Uh, they are digging in and asking questions. Um, I mentioned before that Doug had written a book about Walter Cronkite, who was sort of the, literally the voice of authority for much of the American public. And when Cronkite turned against the Vietnam War, uh, it had a major impact, and it may well have led to Lyndon Johnson's decision not to run for re-election that year. But the media has changed dramatically since then uh, and become far more fragmented. Uh, The cable news, internet, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, Today, everybody's a journalist, and we all choose the news feeds that reinforce our own prejudices. Um, Are we better or worse off, Mark? Uh, (laughs) I can't say. I don't know. But I will say this. The, the, The media landscape is going to become more fragmented, not less fragmented. And, and it's not the first time we've had a fragmented media landscape in, in American history. You had partisan newspapers during the, the times of the, the founding fathers. At the turn of last century, you had dozens of newspapers in New York alone. What, what remains to be seen is whether there will be a, main, a, a go-to mainstream source of news that most Americans trust. I don't know the answer to that. But, but let me make one comment, though about Walter Cronkite. Uh, Cronkite, there are two sort of icons of 20th century television news, uh, Edward R. Murrow and Walter Cronkite. And I think their finest moments, you you referenced one with Walter Cronkite, come when they are editorializing. Walter Cronkite goes to Vietnam and says, this is not a winnable campaign. It's a stalemate at best. As you pointed out, Michael, Lyndon Johnson says, if I can't get Walter Cronkite, if, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost America. And to some degree, he realizes that uh, he needs to step down from the presidency in order to heal the nation and find peace in Vietnam. Uh, but Edward Murrow also had his finest moment when he stood up to Joseph McCarthy. Uh, we don't remember those senators who aligned themselves with Joseph McCarthy in the 21st century. We do remember the journalists. The reason they were able to have an impact when they editorialized is because they were trusted. And um, uh, Doug, you wrote the book on Cronkite. And um, I think Mark hit an important point. I don't think we're ever, I think there is never going to be a Cronkite figure that everybody trusts again. If I had to pick one right now, if a real crisis occurs on television, I think it's Wolf Blitzer. Uh, Wolf is hard to tell whether he's right or left, and he's uh, uh, he never editorializes. Did never never editorializes, and I don't know if any of you have seen the Mission Impossible movie, but Wolf Blitzer's in it, where there's a nuclear war, and we're all going to be watching Wolf as the one you know one 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 person. He also doesn't age. He doesn't age. (laughs) Thirty years. 
I'm just having a little fun and praising a colleague, um, and Wolf does a good job. But Cronkite ran television, which is a new medium from 1950, when he retired in 1981. Uh, by the time he became the most trusted man in America because everybody distrusted everybody else. People distrusted Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, Robert McNamara, due to Vietnam, by default, Walter Cronkite became the most trusted man in America. He quit in 81, and it's telling because that's, it was just at the time of year 79, but cable news was born, and now, of course, social media and, um, and other ways that people get, um, get their information that we're not all turned, and then people's lifestyles changed. We're not all, like, we're going home and eating supper to watch the Cronkite news. We get our, we tape things, we, we, you know, we get it online, we grab our news like a Yahoo whenever people want, you know. So um, those days of Cronkite are over. Uh, he had a great run. He's a historic figure, and I agree with Mark. His, they they cash their trust in on these great moments. Murrow, uh, McCarthy, Cronkite on um, Vietnam, uh, but they had earned a lot of trust. Murrow in World War II and Cronkite in the Kennedy assassination. But they decided they're a moral imperative that they had to put their chips on the table. Well, let, let's bring this back to Trump for a minute because. Uh, throughout our history, uh, you know, great presidents um, have been able to uh, learn how to use, almost intuitively understand, the media technology of their time, whether it's FDR and the radio, uh, uh, JFK and the first uh, television age president, Reagan, the great communicator. But has any president um, uh, been able to dominate um, media um, in the, and, and exploit the, uh, the current technology in the way that Donald Trump has? The difference is he can go immediately to the masses. You know, the, 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 as, as you mentioned, the, the great politicians master the, the media of their ages. For, for, for Jefferson, it was partisan newspapers. Uh, Abraham Lincoln exploited the fledgling art of photography in order to launch his 19, or 1860 presidential campaign. But the difference is that all Donald Trump has to do is pull his phone out of his pocket and tweet away. And he reaches, what, I don't know how many followers he has now, untold millions of followers and every single news organization on the planet. So never have we had that immediacy before. Yeah. I, when I was at Twitter, you know, one of the things, among other things we, we would do when working with journalists and news organizations is sort of teach them how to be very effective tweeters. Donald Trump is a masterclass. He is, he is a genius at Twitter. He really is. In fact, in, in a way, I think he was better at 140 characters than now that it's at 280. He had really figured out how to nail that succinct message, you know, with, especially with his you know, favorite punctuation. We don't know so much. <laughs> Sad. Yeah. Uh, but really, he's a, he's a, he's a, it's a master class. On that note, uh, I want to thank uh, Doug and Mark and Vivian for joining us on this special edition of Skullduggery live in Austin, Texas. Thanks to Matt Bai and all of our great guests in Austin, Texas for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. And Skullduggery is also on SiriusXM. Subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays at 10 p.m. on Saturday and Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you next week.